Hello, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 47 of The Right Take. I am Eric Lendrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. And we are thrilled to be here with you guys for this, the final episode of our podcast for the year 2021. 47 episodes later, this has been one heck of a ride. Wouldn't you agree, Jacob? Oh, yes, yeah. 2021 has been a pretty good year for um, for us, at least. I mean, uh, some people some people may not agree with that, but uh, for, for us, it's been a lot better than 2020. We have been thrilled, of course, to be able to spend this year growing with you guys, bringing on guests, delivering you guys the best takes, and yes, the right takes, on politics, culture, and other things you need to know about in America and around the world. And it is only fitting, of course as the end of the year episode, that we do a year in review recap episode, which is what we are going to do. And especially considering our very first episode, if you remember, Jacob, episode number one was recap of 2020 and the widespread myth of 2020 was literally Hitler. It was the worst year ever. It was the worst year in the history of years ever. And we debunked that bit by bit and how 2020 realistically was only bad for like rich liberal hipsters. It was not Yes, there were bad things that happened that year. You know, the very questionable election. We just did a whole series on whether or not that election was stolen. The, of course, the onset of the Chinese Wuhan coronavirus and the lockdowns that came with it. And, of course, the race riots that largely went unpunished. But 2021 was definitely a year full of disaster in its own right under the watch of so-called President Joe Biden. And we will be talking about all these things and more. So to start off, where better to start off with? And, of course, the first big thing that happened in the calendar year 2021 And that was the peaceful protests at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, which, of course, if you're watching the mainstream media, was literally the worst thing since the Civil War. It was worse than Pearl Harbor. It was worse than 9-11. It was an insurrection that was basically about to overthrow the U.S. government as we knew it because a bunch of boomers took some selfies in Nancy Pelosi's office. So we all know, of course, the mainstream media story. But what do we know as the real story? Of January 6th. We talked about this, of course, a little bit on the podcast in the immediate aftermath of it, but we have not yet done a deep dive into that. We very well may do so in the future. Of course, the one year anniversary is coming up, and I actually am working on an article that will hopefully go up around the anniversary of January 6th on American Greatness, so you can follow me there at amgreatness.com. But, of course, what needs to be said is that the mainstream media narrative of January 6th is a lie. It was not an insurrection because, first off, they were not armed. There were, there were no guns. There were no weapons there. You cannot have an insurrection if it is unarmed, okay? That's just completely impossible. That does not mix with the definition of insurrection. Second off, you will see a lot of mainstream media stories still to this day, even from good outlets like the New York Post. I saw this in the New York Post the other day. I was disappointed. That will still run with a phrase or sentence something along the lines of the deadly violent riot attack on the U.S. Capitol that left five people dead as if Trump supporters who were mad about the stolen election beat five people to death in the halls of Congress which is literally not what happened at all there were a handful of deaths in the crowd before during and after that were related to freak medical accidents due to older people being there because surprise that's what happens there there have been a handful of Trump campaign rallies where old people will have a heart attacks or something or in a crowded room and they'll call for a doctor. You know, Trump will stop the rally to call for a doctor. That has happened before. So it has nothing to do with what happened that day. There was only one person who was murdered on January 6th, and it was a Trump supporter, an Air Force veteran named Ashley Babbitt, an unarmed protester who was shot and killed by a cowardly member of the Capitol Police, uh, Michael Leroy Bird, who is now being treated as a hero. He's on indefinite leave, paid leave, and he's been treated as a hero by the media after he came out on his NBC interview with Lester Holt. And we talked about that as well. So what else do you need to know? Of course, we have talked a lot about the imprisonment of hundreds upon hundreds of Americans, not just the ones who were there, mind you, but lots of Americans who were not even at the Capitol, who were just in D.C. on January 6th. The government asked Bank of America to hand over all financial transactions from its customers in D.C. on January 6th to try to track down people guilty of wrong think. 
there are many, many stories that have been talked about. There have been plenty of great documentaries about January 6th. Of course, Tucker Carlson did a, a documentary for Fox Nation. Uh, Nick Searcy did a movie recently. The actor Nick Searcy did a movie called Capital Punishment, very clever title, by the way, which documented some of the Americans who were there just protesting, but they were not at the Capitol. They didn't go near the Capitol. And they still, weeks later, months later, suddenly had the FBI literally smashing in their door and throwing flashbangs into their living rooms, sometimes even in the dead of night, and arresting them and dragging them out in front of their neighbors for not even being at the Capitol on January 6th. It's absolutely insane. I have compared it to the Reichstag fire, of course, which gave rise to Nazi Germany. And that is really what it is. It was their Reichstag fire, an incident that realistically, this caused less damage than the fire than the fire that happened there. There was very little damage. It was cleaned up and everything was back to normal in a few hours. And they've used it and turned it into a year of the long knives. And they are purging their political opposition. And they're not just going after regular American citizens. They are going after Trump administration officials. They've issued subpoenas of so many Trump officials. Uh, the press secretary, Kaylee McEnany, got subpoenaed by this January 6th committee. Uh, of course, two of them, Steve Bannon and Mark Meadows, have defied those subpoenas and said, you know, screw you guys. We're not going to work with you. And they've been held in contempt of Congress. And the committee, by the way, of course, is illegal. It's it's run by Democrats. It's run by Nancy Pelosi. Its chair is Benny Thompson of Mississippi. And when McCarthy tried to seat a handful of Republicans on the committee, because, you know, that's usually how it is. There's a balance of Republicans and Democrats. Pelosi refused to seat uh, Jim Jordan of Ohio and Jim Banks of Indiana in particular, claiming they were you know, especially radical. And so McCarthy, to his credit, played ball and was like, OK, then I'm going to withdraw all of my Republican picks. I'm not going to put any Republicans on that committee if you're not going to allow any of my picks to be on there. So then Pelosi went out of her way to select her preferred Republicans, which, surprise, is just two. Two of the only 10 Republicans who voted in favor of the second impeachment of President Trump. Adam Kinzinger of Illinois and Liz Cheney of Wyoming. They are the two Republicans on the committee. So it's like, I think, six or seven Democrats and then two Republicans. So it's a it's a Democrat committee. It's partisan. It's operating illegally. It has already broken several House rules. And they are and yet they are still using this as a blanket to go after all their political opponents. And the media is running with it and gleefully cheering them on and celebrating this like they did the Russian investigation. This is basically Russia 2.0 all over again. So basically, they have used this, of course, as a pretense to go full authoritarian and not just within the realms of Congress and arresting people all across the country, but they used it to turn D.C. into their very own fort, almost like the capital, the new capital of an invading country. And we saw this in the immediate aftermath of January 6th, going up to the inauguration of Joe Biden, what could only be described as a complete military occupation of Washington, D.C. Jacob, you actually were in D.C. in those days immediately after January 6th. You saw for yourself what it looked like. Uh, what did that look like when the military completely took over the Capitol? So in order to understand Democrats' reaction to this, and that is the Democratic Party leadership's reaction to this, you have to consider their reaction to COVID. Their obsession with COVID stems from the average Democrat's belief that COVID is a lot more deadly than it actually is. I was actually talking to someone yesterday who is a manager in D.C. At a, at a hotel and restaurant, and he was actually disappointed that the vaccine mandate in D.C. isn't going to cover his hotel because he was concerned that unvaccinated people are going to come to his hotel and get people sick. And he said, I've got a one-year-old daughter and I can't imagine her on a ventilator. I can't imagine her gasping for air. And it's just the delusion of people because they see a problem and they blow it out of proportion because the media has told them that they need to be, they need to blow this out of proportion and they need to panic over it. Yeah, it's the same I, way with January 6th. Because I cry every single time I see a story about a one-year-old with COVID because that absolutely is a thing that happens. Oh, no, wait, it's not. Literally, yeah. The younger you are, the less likely you are to get COVID. Infants and toddlers – 
do not get COVID. You're not going to see a one-year-old on a ventilator, not for COVID at least. So but, that that's either the mainstream media outright lying to him or he is just not even listening and he's just making his own assumptions that, oh, this is a black plague that can affect literally everybody. Well, there was a poll taken a few months ago that showed that most Democrats believed that COVID had a death rate of at a, at a uh, what's the official word a uh, morbidity rate the of, official uh, the mortality rate the mortality rate of twenty percent so if twenty percent one fifth if you think that COVID has a twenty percent mortality rate then yeah you're gonna you're gonna say okay you've got a vaccine jab you know jab it in my arm I don't care I'm not gonna research I don't care what's in it health experts say it's safe go ahead and put it in my arm let's get this over with if but if you recognize that it's got like a two percent mortality rate and like a point five percent for people under the age of, of 50 i mean for people under 40 it's even less then you understand that this actually isn't as big of an issue for people who aren't immunocompromised or elderly as people are making out to be but people people who in around dc which is like 90 percent democrat they look at the january 6th insurrection or riot the same way they do at COVID. um i was listening to a radio show after january 6th there's this local radio DJ uh, named uh, Elliot Siegel. He uh, runs a uh, program that's uh, like five hours every morning, every weekday. And he was saying that the next morning he expected to wake up to see the Capitol in smoldering ruins. He expected to see it complete ash and just smoke billowing from what used to be the Capitol. Like 1812 all over again. That's what he expected. He was, he was being serious. He actually thought that the MAGA crowd was going to go in there and just torch the Capitol and burn it to the ground. And destroy, you know, they could just destroy this hallmark of American civilization, American government, just just wipe it out. But this is the mentality they have. These that these people that came to, to uh, D.C., they're a bunch of they're basically a bunch of peasants that don't understand how government works. Granted, many of them don't, but not to the extent that they that the liberals in D.C. think that they don't understand. So in their minds, these are just a bunch of rabble. That came to D.C., they don't understand anything about D.C. or the government, and so they're just angry, so they're just going to burn everything to the ground. Yeah, they're a bunch of rednecks. The absolute contempt that the Democrats have for these people, and again, this is what I've talked about, they were humiliated. I remember on January 6th, the pictures that were circulating of uh, Pramila Jayapal in particular, literally cowering under her desk in the House chamber as a couple of like MAGA hat wearers are walking through the Capitol and the look of horror on her face. It was like they were aliens invading the planet yeah, Earth. That's they could- exactly how they felt. Well, their their reaction to that was the same that you would have seen in Congress if Germany had invaded Washington, D.C. or not even. If, if, I guarantee you if German troops had occupied D.C. during World War II, you wouldn't have seen the reaction to them that you did whenever the January 6th crowd invaded the Capitol. Now, if it's more like if, uh, in line with if the Japanese had invaded D.C. after all, after it leaked that um, the Japanese military was torturing American POWs, and now you've got the Japanese army invading the Capitol. Yeah, I can see Congress people fearing for their lives, want to hide under desks and stuff, afraid they're going to be captured and tortured. This was the mentality. So this gives you a window into how these people view just normal, ordinary Americans. They view them as savages. They view them as barbarians. They're in their mind, all of these people are going to kill us. They're going to torture us. Like what AOC said, she genuinely believed she was not only going to be killed, but that she was going to be raped. She believed it. She she believed that. Yeah, she wasn't being. Uh, she wasn't just being hyperbolic. Uh, there was. Uh, remember the the black police officer, the black capital police officer who tried to divert the crowd that was running in. He uh, got them to chase him as they were breaking into the Capitol. He got them to chase him. And everything he got. You know, he was really. I mean, they were like, oh, they need to make a movie about this guy. Well, I saw the live stream on that. Whenever they're coming in and they're running up the steps, and he runs away. And a lot of the commenters are saying they're probably wanting to lynch him. And I'm thinking to myself, no, they're wanting, they don't care anything about him. 
they're not there for him. They want to get into the Capitol. He just happens to be standing yeah, there. Yeah, he's just there in their way. They're trying to get to the legislators to tell them to demand that they not certify the election results. And that's the thing. If these people had walked into the chamber, if they had all walked in the chamber while the Congress people were there, there would have been some yelling. There would have been some profanity. There would have been a big scene. They wouldn't have done. But they wouldn't have hurt been, anybody. There wouldn't have been any physical violence. No, like nobody in that crowd. I, yeah, there might have been a few people in that crowd that wanted to punch a few Congress people in the face, but there were enough people in that crowd there to stop that from happening. That, exactly. That wouldn't have. That would not have happened. There are multiple videos of like the handful, and this is, again is something else that Tucker talked about in his documentary, and it has been speculated that there were federal. Uh, agents, you know, or possibly, or just troublemakers, maybe not necessarily feds, but, you know, BLM and Antifa protesters who were wearing in disguise as MAGA protesters and could be seen. You see videos where, like, some of them are trying to smash windows and other MAGA protesters are stopping them, like, pulling them away, like, no, don't break that. And others, like, apparently MAGA people fighting other MAGA people, but that's how you can tell who the, the real infiltrators are. So, yeah, absolutely. But, there well, you been- see the reaction to COVID. Uh, it's the same thing with the reaction to January 6th. So when you think about how these people in, who run the D.C. government, who run the local D.C. National Guard, even, like, a lot of – you think about Millie. Like General uh, Milley, like the traitor. There's going to be hundreds of Millies in the in the military just because that's how bureaucracy functions. They go to Ivy League schools, they get indoctrinated. They have the same view of Americans that Richard Hofstetter, who we pointed out in another episode, the historian, the the elitist New York historian, ex-Marxist, uh, how he viewed the the rabble that supported Joseph McCarthy. They view the American people the same way that Richard Hofstetter viewed all the you know the vast unwashed masses. So you have these military commanders. They're asked for troops so they're like okay well we don't want tens of thousands of you know revolutionaries coming to dc to disrupt the inauguration so we need twenty thousand troops no make it thirty thousand so they put thirty thousand armed troops in the streets of dc set up checkpoints all around the capital if you're just going to town to go to cvs or whatever you've got to stop and tell them where you're going it's like you're in a military dictatorship like they had military checkpoints at every single choke point in the main, in the city. So if you just wanted to go to town with the wife or whatever, you know, just walk along the National Mall, you couldn't without having to first go through a military checkpoint like you were in Af- Afghanistan. Or like you were crossing from uh, West Germany into East Germany. Yeah, they didn't even do this during Hurricane Katrina. In fact, they tried to, and the military commander shut it down. I remember watching it. They were setting up checkpoints. They said, hey, stop, stop stopping people. This isn't Iraq. And that's a hurricane where you've got thousands of people that are murdering, raping, and looting because it's, it's lawlessness, because there's no everything is flooded. Even in that situation, you didn't have the response that you did after January 6th. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, okay, so you had about 5,000. At the high end, there might have been 8,000 people who were with the crowd that stormed the Capitol. Now, you didn't have 8,000 people go into the Capitol. You might have had 1,200 to 1,500 people who actually walked into the Capitol. Outside, you had maybe five to 8,000. It's not like if five to 8,000 unarmed people. Like they didn't have anything more and than no pepper guns, spray. nothing. Yeah. So your response to that, and after they were crushed, like after they were arrested, beaten by police, they're uh, they're rounded up by the hundreds and made an example of on national TV. Do you really think that that five to eight thousand is somehow going to go recruit another fifty thousand armed people to come storm DC? So you, your response is let's put thirty thousand people in the troop. Let's put thirty thousand troops in the streets. And the thing is, like, what's interesting is, so they're like, okay, let's let's put these troops in the streets. 
But they treat the troops about like they would have treated their alleged enemies, their MAGA enemies. They make them sleep in the streets. They make them sleep That's in alleys. Right. Sleep in those sleep parking in garages. garages. Yeah. yeah, and remember in uh, – I mean these are – you've got to remember in uh, – like during the Black Lives Matter riots, they didn't even let them use the bathroom sometimes in hotels. Mm-hmm. They made them you know, you know, just go go piss in the alley. Like you're, you're a National Guard troop brought in by Donald Trump to put down our Black Lives Matter revolution. So this is the mentality they have even when they bring them in to protect Joe Biden's inauguration. But the, the one of the highlights of all this is despite all of that, uh, despite the fact that our capital was put under military occupation, it it did put a damper on Biden's inauguration. That was that was one thing we talked about because you know in the past, of course, Antifa tried to shut down Trump's first inauguration in 2017, and all they did they smashed some windows, they burned a limousine that was owned by like an immigrant, I think. So like things like that, they tried to shut down the inauguration. You know, stop J20 was a hashtag or something, and they failed. And a lot of them got arrested. There was great video of the police tactically like surrounding them in a four way intersection from all four sides, and then closing it and just corralling and arresting them in mass. But they failed to stop Trump's inauguration, and it had huge attendance. It had Uh, I think like what, not almost a million people in attendance there, which was twice as much as the women's march. Uh, But then, of course, four years later, you have Biden's inauguration, which actually was shut down by a much uh, again, by a peaceful protest. They shut it down. And you could you could argue they were already going to have a more small scale inauguration due to covid safety measures. But, you know, again, they, they fenced off the National Mall. And they had more. There were more National Guardsmen in attendance at his inauguration than there were guests. And the thing is, they kept those fences up around the National Mall, around the Capitol for building for six, five, six, seven months. The only they finally took it down when D.C. residents finally demanded that they take it down because mm-hmm. they couldn't access the Capitol. Everything. And the thing is, it, it's like you're trying to get into the mind of people who think like this. Like who thinks like this? You bring thirty thousand troops to the capital city. You put hundreds of people in jail to set an example and put it all over local news. Solitary confinement. Yeah, YouTube is, of course, running these videos, trying to boost the views to show people this is what happens if you stage an insurrection against American democracy. So after all of that, you're still going to keep the fences up around the Capitol. And what's more is they put the fences back up when they had that little uh, little protest. Protest okay, for, um, justice for J six, which was really so just a fed sting. Well, no, it wasn't a fed sting. They were actually the people who organized it actually were there to protest the treatment of the of the uh, of the prisoners. But you had like fifty people show up at most, if 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 that. I mean, you might have had it when you count the feds in the crowd that did show up, and then it might have made it to fifty. But you had about five thousand DC National Guard troops all surrounded, and then they put the fences back up. So. This, if anything, should give ordinary people a window into how the American regime views them as citizens. So when you talk, when people say, well, support the troops, support the troops, yeah, I support the average Joe who goes in the military, wants to serve his country. I can't support generals like Milley. I can't support bureaucrats who go in and view the American people as their enemy. Mm-hmm. And it this, this kind of plays back into what we talked about before. The American military and the American regime isn't there to serve the American people. They don't view – they have been brainwashed to believe that America isn't a legitimate country. They believe that America is an experiment in democracy. So you take somebody with that mentality, their goal as a military general is to defend democracy, not the American people. Whatever democracy means. If the American people become a threat to democracy, the American people are the enemy, and they are to be treated just like you would treat enemies of democracy in the Middle East. And this is why you had people throwing out stuff like maybe we can drone – MAGA protesters. Yep. Maybe we can put them in Guantanamo Bay. Maybe we can suspend habeas corpus. Let's have a war on domestic terror, this type of stuff. Well, that it's not partisan. This is the thing a lot of people make the mistake. They think, okay, these are Democrats wanting to arrest Republicans. What's new? No, no, no. These are people who believe they that America is an experiment in democracy. They believe they're supposed to defend democracy, and they see Americans as a threat to democracy. 
These are the same people, and I think Tucker Carlson made this point at one point, that, you know, the establishment that was so convinced that Trump was a Russian agent, they got all behind Hillary in 2016, you know, they happened to get behind the Democrat against the Republican. He said if the roles were switched up in 2016 and it was Jeb Bush versus Tulsi Gabbard, that same establishment would have gotten behind Jeb Bush. So, yes. like, absolutely. Yeah, that's so correct. Yeah. They are against dissidents on any side, people who just are against the deep state, the the heavy bureaucracy that we're now seeing to unprecedented levels under Joe Biden. Uh, but with that said, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the record thus far with one year, just under one year of Joe Biden. So, of course, the first big thing he did was he signed into law. You got to love these these names they come up with. It sounds so self-righteous. The American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. And it's it, that was the $1.9 trillion stimulus bill on coro ostensibly coronavirus aid and relief. And the media celebrated this like, oh, thank you. This is this. This is the key. This is going to save us from the coronavirus. Obviously, that ended up not being true, but we'll come back to that in a bit. But I just think it is hilarious to point out that compare this to the plant, the similar bills that were signed into law under President Trump. The CARES Act, which he signed in March, was $2.2 trillion, which, of course, is more than the $1.9 trillion that Joe Biden spent. And then later on, he signed a couple more bills that was like an additional trillion dollars stimulus bill. He spent way more money on coronavirus relief than Biden did. But of course, the media completely ignored that and was like, oh, no, no, Biden is the one who's saving us. Biden is the one who's protecting us from the virus. But when you look especially at the American Rescue Plan Act, there are details of it that you realize, OK, this was kind of a mini Trojan horse for some aspects of his agenda, namely 500 billion. That's all. That's almost a fourth, more than a fourth of this bill was dedicated solely to green energy alternatives, as, which has nothing to do with the virus, obviously, but that was just their way to kind of slip little bits of Green New Deal type stuff into their agenda. And of course, as we hinted, it has done jack all to stop the virus. Remember uh, J July 4th, Jacob, when uh, Biden had a big ceremony at the White House declaring, we are declaring our independence from the coronavirus. You know, I, I don't. I don't he, remember that. That's he, that's that's that, hilarious. That is what he said. He made a big like patriotic speech, like we have turned a corner. The American people are free of the coronavirus. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, womp, I mean, womp. yeah, Delta was just it was just getting warmed up. Delta slash. Remember, it was the India variant, but then they insisted on calling it Delta because that would be racist. Because you know, oh, don't call it because it came from India. So like, don't call it the Indian variant. We got to start using the the Greek alphabet now. So that's where I came from. And jumping a little ahead here, though, that's where also Omicron came from. Omicron was originally the South Africa variant, but of course they don't want to be racist, so they call it the Omicron variant. But yeah, Delta came out of nowhere, and it was noted with both Delta and Omicron, they are much more contagious. But they're far less deadly. D Delta wasn't that. Delta, I think, was a little bit more deadly than the was beta it? version of 2020. Oh, okay. But the, either the, way, it well, was... the difference between Delta and the beta version is Delta started hitting a lot more young, a lot younger people, whereas mm -hmm. beta didn't didn't kill as many younger people. It was also getting people who had the vaccine already sick. Like they were still yeah, getting yeah. sick, which is the thing. People will tell you, you know, if you listen to actual scientists and doctors, they will tell you this is what happens: strains develop. A virus will adapt itself. It will, when it, a single vaccine starts being used, it will eventually adapt and learn how to kind of overcome those challenges. That's what happens to the flu every year. That's why every year you go back for your flu shot because the flu changes. You got to get a new shot to keep whatever the latest strain is away and you go about your day. And we don't shut anything down over the flu. That's realistically what people have been comparing it to. It is the new flu. It's it's something that's going to be here forever. There's going to be more and more strains. We're just going to have to learn to deal with it and maybe adjust our strategy in terms of like sh regular shots as opposed to vaccines. You know, again, a flu shot, my understanding is right, injects you with a small sample of the flu. So just a tiny enough sample that's not actually going to turn into the disease, but your blood cells can attack it and defeat it. 
and learn from it so that they know, okay, we can now fight against if a larger, like a potentially actual disease version of the flu tries to get into your system. And But the vaccines were sold to us. Again, the vaccines were developed in under a year by President Trump, so props to him for Operation Warp Speed, as it was called, the Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, and Moderna vaccines. But the vaccine, once Biden came in, the vaccines were sold as bulletproof vests. Get the vaccine and you will never get sick. You will. You don't have to wear a mask anymore. You can go back to life as normal. Just get vaccinated. And then, of course, a little bit after July 4th, once Delta came along, it was, oh, no, 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 you'll still get it if you're vaccinated. So still wear your mask. And we have to do more lockdowns. And it just, and the cycle repeated with Omicron. And they keep changing their narrative. They've Fauci changed his narrative about masks. Biden has changed his narrative about you know, the effectiveness of vaccines. And he just recently said, th this has been taken by a lot of the media. He said, quote, there is no federal solution, end quote, to the virus. And he kind of deferred a little bit more to the states that are really fighting it, i.e. Democrat states like New, New York and Illinois, and not states like Florida that are just letting the businesses stay open as they should. So he's completely backtracked on that. And to the credit, the media has kind of acknowledge this. The media hasn't completely run cover for him, and you're seeing it with his approval ratings starting to dip. They have fallen to very, very historic lows. He, I think, uh, Quinny Piac poll recently had him at 36%, which is really bad. Like, those are already worse than Trump's numbers, and Trump's numbers were kept down pretty much all times because of the negative media coverage, but there's no hiding the overwhelming disapproval of Biden's handling of COVID. That was one of his, that was like his signature promise in 2020, right? I will, he famously said, I won't shut down the country. I will shut down the virus. Uh, again, oops, womp womp. Well, normally, uh, somebody we're in the age of such partisan media, uh, and, you know, partisan newspapers, partisan media that most people don't learn the details of anything. They simply learn a narrative. So let's let's just take our own side. Someone on the right, you turn on Fox News, and if you quiz them on what they watched on Fox News a day later, they wouldn't be able to tell you ninety percent of what they saw. They would just be able to give you the general narrative that was presented. And the same is the true. The talking points. The, yeah, they'd be, be able to give you the talking points. The same is true with the COVID narrative. The COVID narrative for the left, and even, not even for the left, just for neoliberals, the institutional anti-Trump right, their narrative was Donald Trump's administration has botched the response to COVID because they haven't been listening to scientists and doctors, and they're run by a bunch of anti-intellectual rubes. That, that's the base of their party, so they respond to the base of their party. If we get this party out of power and we put in the Democrats, they will listen to science, they will listen to the doctors, they will follow the science, and as a result, we'll be able to get out of this pandemic within six, you know, eight, ten. Some people, I remember uh, talking to one person who was uh, all, in, all in for Biden, they're like, yeah, by September, October 2021, this will finally be over with with uh, the Biden administration. Yeah, but about that. <laughs> the, the problem is they don't, whenever, whenever you take a partisan narrative, and that's what you base all of your, that's the filter that you listen to all news through, it's almost like you're, you're eliminating your own body's BS immune system. So you're breaking down your own bs meter And so to the point where – so let's just take vaccines and masks. Okay, so if I believe the vaccines work, <clears throat> I get the vaccine in April. All right, well, why am I wearing a mask? I take the mask off. Like I've got my vaccine. I'm protected. I'm protecting other people by having a vaccine. This vaccine is far more effective than any cloth mask. So let's just take the mask off. Well, they didn't do that. They kept wearing the mask until the CDC told them that they could take it off. And so they finally they take it off. And I don't remember what the event was, but it was very political. I remember at the time there was a there was a political reason why the CDC was saying, all right, you can take your masks off. Oh, I remember back in 2020, they explicitly there was a big letter signed by like, what, a couple hundred scientists, quote unquote, that literally said, you are safe if you are at a Black Lives Matter protest without a mask, but you should wear a mask at an anti 
anti-vax protest or anti-mandate, anti-lockdown yeah. protest. They literally said, these are super spreaders. Racial justice protests are fine. Like, you cannot make this stuff up. No, no, because, well, at that point, so at that point, you still got a lot of Democrats that don't believe that CDC is partisan. They still, and then, so the CDC tells them, okay, you can drop the mask if you're vaccinated. Okay, masks off. Everyone around the D.C. area, they finally start taking their masks off. You got a, you got a few people who you can tell that they they don't agree with the decision. They're still clinging to their mask. It's still their security blanket. They're walking around <laughs> to show that they're even more... Yeah, they're even more responsible than the CDC. It's more virtue signaling at that point. Like, it's some people have said masks are like the left's new MAGA hat. You know, it's something they will wear to show their obedience and compliance. But by and large, most people drop the mask. And then a few months later, they're like, okay, well, this is spread among, Delta spread amongst the vaccinated. We need to put the mask back on. And I remember at the time, there was a lot of confusion. Uh, you could start to see people, it's like, well, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. It's kind of like if someone's following a cult and then the cult is contradicting itself and it's saying things that don't make sense. It's like, then you see, you can see the confusion in people's faces. Like they still want to cling to the cult. They still believe in the cult, but the cult is saying things that just don't make sense. It's going against everything that their gut tells them. And this is kind of where, where we've, uh, where we're at today. You've got uh, cities that are implementing, some cities are implementing vaccine mandates. Some cities are, um, you know, bringing back mask mandates. Uh, DC has had a a, uh, mask mandate for months now. You can't go anywhere indoors without a mask on, which is just, it's hurting the city. Like people, so what's, what's happened and what's happened in 2021 is you've had a massive realignment with people moving to areas with people just like them. So you've got people who believe in freedom and personal choice. They're moving to areas like Florida. South Carolina is exploding in population. Pretty much the entire South is exploding in population. Texas. People, yeah, states like New Jersey, New York, uh, cities like Washington, D.C., states like California. California. They're bleeding population massively. And a lot of the people that are leaving are people who are middle class. They're people with means. and They're just hurting themselves. Like implementing a mask mandate, I, th- I think— I think this goes back to their mentality that Democrats are are hardworking, middle class and wealthy people. Republicans are lazy, welfare sucking bums. That is their worldview. So in their mind, if we implement a vaccine mandate, the few middle class Republicans out there, if they want to make a trip to D.C., they're going to have to get vaccinated. Otherwise, they're just going to have to stay on their farm. This this is the worldview like. Republicans are dirt poor. They're a bunch of backwards hillbillies living in shacks. You've got a few middle class and wealthy farmers, a few oil tycoons. And then if these rich people, these rich Republicans, if they want to come to our city and enjoy our civilization, they've got to get vaccinated. They don't realize that a lot of the people in their cities are leaving their cities because they, too, don't agree with the, the mandates. They don't agree with having to show a vaccine card wherever they go and if they want to go to a bar or restaurant, especially when you got Virginia right across the river. Like, exactly. Why would you... With a new Republican governor, which we'll talk about later. And you don't have to worry about getting hit with a stray bullet in Arlington. <laughs> that, that's that's another big factor. Like if you go mm-hmm. to a bar on 14th Street, you could get hit with a stray bullet at any time. You don't you never know when that's going to happen. So that's. That's that's another thing. Yeah, they're just shooting themselves in the foot, and uh, it's gonna yeah, a couple of years. They're gonna they're probably gonna drop all this and realize how uh, how wrongheaded they were to hurt themselves this way. Especially because it is politically harmful too. And if they seriously try to keep these lockdowns going into 2022, it's only gonna hurt them in the midterms. But that's the interesting thing that you have pointed out to me, Jacob, is that realistically, outside of the big cities, there are no lockdowns in the country. You're not seeing lockdowns in Kansas or you know Missouri. It's only in the big cities. And because it's being talked about in the mainstream media, you would think, oh, the country's still locked down. But if you go outside of these areas and go to, like, normal America, like my hometown, for example, the, it's normal. There's no masks. There's no lockdowns. People are just going about their lives. No, COVID Most is Americans just another disease out there. Exactly. Swine flu. I remember how many diseases we saw, you know, swine flu and uh, 
of Ebola and other outbreaks that happened under Obama, and they didn't get nearly as much coverage. And again, that does tie back to the fact COVID only got this much coverage because it happened under Trump, and it could be used as a weapon against him, both you know to hurt him in the mainstream media, this idea that he was incompetent, and also to set in place all the vote-by-mail schemes that ultimately led to the very questionable outcome of the 2020 election. So then other things we have to talk about, of course, one of the biggest, I think some of us could agree, the biggest failure of the Biden administration in the year 2021, certainly the biggest foreign policy blunder in modern American history, was the Afghanistan withdrawal. And we did a whole episode on this, of course, you know, the uh, we called it America Exits the Graveyard of Empires, which is, is what happened. You know, again, the Soviet Union found similar failure in Afghanistan in the 70s and 80s, and it was our turn. And it was a tragic but you could argue a fitting end to the longest war in American history over 20 years. And again, this all stemmed from the fact that Biden, being the petty, petulant little man-child that he is, could not stand to leave anything Trump touched intact. He had to completely erase it, you know, reverse it, or alter it to make it his own. So, of course, Trump signed a peace deal with the Taliban and the government of Afghanistan in February of 2020 that would agree to see all American troops withdraw from the country by May 1st, 2021. And Biden, of course, came in and said, well, no, I'm going to change. I'm going to make this my own. He had to make he was going to keep his commitment on withdrawing from Afghanistan so that he could say I ended the longest war in American history. But he had to make it his own. So remember, he artificially extended the date, the withdrawal date to September 11th. So it could be a big symbolic because, of course, this year is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. So he could give the big speech in New York or wherever on on September 11th, 2021 and say, this is a turning of the page. This is the end of an era. It's time for a new chapter. All the cliches you've heard before. And then the logistics came up, those pesky little things called the logistics and the details of the plan, because this is a massive operation withdrawing all of our forces, all of our equipment from the country after 20 years. And he ended up pushing it back a little to August 31st for the final withdrawal date. But of course, this left the door wide open for the Taliban to take one look and say, hey, we've been upholding our end of the agreement up to this point. Now you're going to break the agreement first just to have this completely arbitrary new withdrawal date. Fine. We're not going to uphold our side of the deal anymore. Let's go, boys. And they started taking over capital after capital after capital. Just it, within a matter of weeks, they took the entire country. And on August 15th, they took the capital of Kabul. And later that same day, the president of Afghanistan fled the country. And that was that was the sign that it was over. It collapsed. And there were still Americans there. There were still American troops. And there were still American citizens left in Kabul and elsewhere in the country. It was a complete disaster. We all saw the footage, of course of the plane taking off, the Air Force aircraft taking off, with Afghanis surrounding it on the runway, running alongside it, running after it, several of them clinging to the landing gear, clinging to the fuselage doors, hanging on for dear life because they decided they'd rather try to hitch a ride on an airplane than stay in an Afghanistan, once again, controlled by the Taliban. And, of course, video of several of them then falling to their deaths. Well, a lot of people will point to this and say, look, look how what a great country you are. People are willing to risk death from an airplane to get into our country. But there was a picture of a, a Afghan family, a refugee family that arrived at Dulles Airport. I saw it circulating on Instagram back in <clears> September or August, late in August, early September. And this kid had it was decked out in a shirt and pants that had it must have had two dozen logos of American corporations all over them. So you had a logo of McDonald's, a logo of Burger King, logo of you know, just different kind of uh, different American corporate corporate logos all over these clothes. I don't know. Maybe they made this in uh, some factory in Asia or whatever, there's like, hey, let's just throw together some clothes that look American and we're going to sell them to kids, to poor kids and all over the world to make them feel like they're, I don't know, like they're like they're American or whatever. But this is the mentality. This is the kind of the mindset that people have. 
and this kind of, kind of is a is a correct representation of America in the 21st century. It's just a, a conglomerate of corporations. Like that's that is America. Like it's not the land of the free. It's not the it's not the landscape. It's not the people. It's not the history. It's not the the form of government. It's just all the corporations. Like what if you ask a little Afghan kid, okay, what is America? Oh, McDonald's, Burger King, Walmart. Yeah, yeah. All, all these corporations, these corporate logos that they saw, whatever you know, these clothes that are being sold at market that that remind them of America. And that's really what. When refugees come to America in the 21st century, when immigrants come to America, that's yep. what they're coming for. Southern border, same thing. They're not coming here because they believe in the idea of America. They're becoming, well, especially not just because of the corporations, but they're coming here because they know, as Biden promised uh, before and after taking office, he said, I will give you free everything. Democrats will give them free everything. We'll give you free health care, free education, free housing, all paid for by the American taxpayer. So they're coming over here because they want a better, they want to get all this free stuff. They want these handouts. Who wouldn't want a bunch of handouts, right? Who wouldn't want to move to a country where you will be given a house? and school and healthcare completely free. Who wouldn't want that? So, of course, they're taking full advantage of it. And again, the open border crisis coinciding with the Afghan refugee crisis, it's just making an already terrible problem even worse for our country. So Biden's decision to push back the withdrawal to se- uh, September 11th gives me this image in my mind. So imagine you uh, you got a guy who's got a girlfriend. He wants to propose to her. So he mm-hmm. reserves this nice fancy dinner. It's got a nice sky view of the city. And just as they're done eating, he pulls out the ring, gets on one knee, and he pukes all over the ring. Just throws up all over the ring, all over her dress. Which is just, something Biden would do, by the way. This, this, this was the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Biden purposely wanted September 11th to be the withdrawal date. He was going to withdraw the troops. Then he was going to give a massive you know, national address to say, here's where we were when I entered office. Here's where we are now after 20 years of endless wars. We're finally out of Afghanistan. I have brought this to conclusion, to a peaceful conclusion. Afghanistan is now a functioning democracy. But of course, it wasn't meant to be. But what's interesting about Biden's hubris and the hubris of his administration is even as this debacle was going down, even as American, 13 American service members were blown up. In a suicide attack, yes. And then in the immediate, don't forget, in the real quick, in the immediate aftermath of that, there was a drone strike on the target that they believed was the location of the people who planned the suicide attack. It was just civilians. And they got it wrong. They killed like seven kids. But even while all this was going on, they still did not change tactics. The press conference was still going forward. The narrative that we are successfully pulling out of Afghanistan was still going forward. They didn't change anything. They didn't admit any wrongdoing. They didn't admit any mistakes. Everything every, everything that went wrong, they just put on the Afghan government. Like, well, it was their fault. They, they, did, blamed, they should have prepared yeah. for this better. And so, if anything, and so he still, what's interesting is he still held that press conference after it was over with. As if America is supposed to applaud him to from, celebrate this, from yeah. ending this, as if none of those deaths happened, as if none of the uh, the chaos happened, as if uh, Kabul was still under Karzai, the Karzai government. I don't know, Karzai wasn't in anymore. Anyway, whoever the Afghan president was. What's interesting is even the Afghan president, after it was over with, he was um, – the, the Afghan people wanted him – essentially dead or alive for embezzling about $147 million. We talked about that as well, yeah. Yeah, he basically loaded up suitcases and duffel bags with $147 million and fled the country. And he got out of Dodge. But this is this is an this is a very apt representation of America's legacy in Afghanistan. Uh, the American people never cared anything about the war. After a few months, it's like, okay, it's old news. Americans forgot about it. And again, it was just it was 10 years after 9-11 when we finally got the guy who was responsible. We got bin Laden and he wasn't even in Afghanistan. He was in Pakistan. So most Americans, you know, more casual understanding of it would think, oh, we finally got the guy who was behind it. All right. Mission accomplished. Right. That's it. It's over. And as you would hear stuff about well, Afghanistan, such and such happened. Afghanistan, this happens like, 
oh, Afghanistan. We're, we're still, still there? there? Yeah, yeah. We're, <laughs> we're still in that country? Well, why, why do we still have troops there? Well, what's, what's going on? So it, it wasn't – this is the thing. The Biden administration expected this to be a huge climatic event. Mm-hmm. That this was going to be something that Americans would celebrate. We'd have parades in the streets. We'd welcome the troops home. Most Americans not only don't remember anything about Afghanistan, they don't care anything about Afghanistan. It's it's over, especially younger Americans. It's, they don't remember 9-11. None of exactly. that means anything the Zoomers, to them. yeah. But so, they will remember those images. Everybody remembers what it was like seeing in the news because it was covered in the news. It was covered everywhere, international news of the people falling from planes, of the suicide attack, of what a disaster it was. And again, obviously, foreign policy is something we talk about a lot on the show. And we are very much against this interventionist you know, stance that America should be the world's police. Again, that was something Trump stood for. You know, We should not be policing the world. But it does need to be said that our standing on the international stage was severely crippled by that incident. Our allies certainly looked at it and said, oh, if they're going to leave their own citizens, American citizens, hundreds of American civilians were left behind on August 31st, the withdrawal date, behind enemy lines, including children, school children who were in Afghanistan. Allies are going to look at this and say, oh, well, clearly they won't even take care of their own people. Why should we trust them? And of course, enemies also look at this, or quote unquote enemies, or nations we should say that are kind of hostile. Certainly, we're now looking at crises, dual crises in both uh, Taiwan and Ukraine, with both uh, China looking to possibly invade Taiwan and Russia looking to invade Ukraine. And it's certainly believable that with the precedent Biden has set, his leadership or lack thereof, they could do those things, and they know, because they know Biden wouldn't do anything to stop them. Well, this goes back to what we talked about, the Truman Doctrine. The American government expects the American people to support a policy that they never signed up for. The American people never agreed to be the world's policemen. At no point did American did the American people ever get on board with spreading democracy. This is and this is again this is the disconnect. The American people are under the impression that they elect representatives who hire 18-year-olds to be service members who all serve the country and the people when actually they're electing representatives who hire people and bureaucrats who are supporting the concept, the nebulous concept of democracy. And, you know, Americans have basically been forced to support a, a an ideology, which is the spread of Wilsonian democracy. Like America is supposed to be this beacon of hope throughout the world. We're supposed to go around the world and slay dragons and set up democracies and overthrow dictators. This is something that the American people never agreed to. We never signed up for this. And so when stuff like this falls apart, then you, you'll have – it's funny. You'll have columnists at places like the Atlantic that they'll attack the American people. Like, well, why, are, why, aren't, you st- why, aren't, why aren't the American people more outraged about this dictator, uh, more outraged about the fact that we're not doing anything to stop this? Because the American people are like any normal country. They're focused on themselves. They're focused on domestic policies. They're focused on what happens at home. And the foreign policy establishment around D.C., they just – they can't you – know, and again, this is the problem because you've got a disconnect. They think that the American people support spreading democracy. The American people never agreed to do that. And so, you know, something like Afghanistan, yeah, it's sad that there's 13 people died. But something like this kind of has to happen eventually if you overextend yourself and you pursue a foreign policy that your citizens aren't on board with. I I think at the very least it should be said we should – put more of our efforts and more of our resources into solving problems here at home and solving things that our citizens care about rather than because, again, that this is what I argued as much as I hate saying this because, you know, we do respect the troops. You got to ask, what did they die for? What did those 13 die for if Afghanistan fell literally the next day? I said this way back when uh, Biden first announced he was going to extend the deadline before the fall of Kabul. I said, if any Americans die between uh, this date 
and September 11th, 2021, any troops die over in Afghanistan, their blood will be on Biden's hands. And that is exactly what happened when we lost those 13 service members who did not need to be there. They should have been gone by May 1st. They shouldn't have been in that country. If they had followed with Trump's withdrawal proposal, they would still be alive. But because Biden had to make it his own to spite Trump, those service members died. And those innocent Afghan civilians, those kids died in that drone strike afterwards in retaliation. All of that could have been avoided, but Biden just had to have it his way. And now nobody trusts him. World leaders don't respect him. Even European globalists like Emmanuel Macron or Angela Merkel who don't trust him anymore. They don't support his leadership. They they don't think he's reliable anymore. And of course, Afghanistan was really the turning point in Biden's approval rating. He yep. was already hovering around 50 percent when the Afghanistan debacle went, and especially when the 13 service members were killed. He just nosedived. Because the media, there was no way the media could cover that. No, There's no could, way they could cover that. No, this is one of the things, and this is this is the thing. The media was telling people these independents for so long that we finally have a return to normalcy. We've finally gone back to just being normal, you know, having a normal government. The adults are back in the room was the, the common line. And then they turn on the TV and they see what's going on in Afghanistan and thinking, wait a minute, I thought the adults were back in the room. I don't remember, you know, this wouldn't have happened. And this is the thing they knew. This would not have happened under a Trump administration. Because mm, exactly. first of all, the date would have been different. And secondly, Trump would have put in enough troops, like he would have flown in enough troops to protect Kabul, protect the people who are evacuating. So it's just the overall overriding chaos behind it. And again, it goes back to the fact that the Biden administration, they serve an ideology that puts democracy first and people second, especially the American people second. But those approval ratings, of course, led to our state being uh, turning completely red. Virginia. Um, that the, was... Yeah, the House of Delegates flipped red. Governorship, thankfully, we've got uh, – we don't have Terry McAuliffe again. I mean um, – That would have been a disaster. So, yeah, so it's – it's um, so things things did improve on the domestic front as people started paying attention, as the media was forced to cover stuff like Afghanistan, like the mm -hmm. Delta variant. Another thing is they believed uh, – most people, most independents believed that COVID would end under Biden. That's right. That's what he promised he would do. He said he would end the virus. And when you have the Delta va variant raging, the blaming the unvaccinated only goes so far. It, it only, it only exactly. is so effective, especially when people who are vaccinated know other people who are vaccinated are getting COVID. So uh, this this kind of uh, jumping into the Virginia thing, this kind of brings us to another domestic policy. One of the things that was really disappointing in 2020 is the fact that so many Americans seem to either not know about the Black Lives Matter riots or didn't seem to care. Or, if anything, they seemed extremely uh, confused by it. They didn't seem to understand what was going on. And I think to a certain extent it's because they've see, we've all seen riots before. Like we had the Trayvon Martin riots. We mm -hmm. had the riots in Baltimore. It's like, okay, it's the Freddie same Gray, old same. Yeah, the Michael Freddie Brown, Gray. Ferguson. It's like yeah. this is the same old, same old. <clears throat> like no, no, nothing is new. Black man gets killed by police. Hundreds of thousands of blacks get in the streets and riot and tear stuff up. Okay, this is this this happens every other year. It's like whatever. What is new? It's an election year. What do you expect? They but, were always – most of those riots were usually localized, like certainly Baltimore and Ferguson. They would be kept to like a handful of cities. They were never a national thing because, well, certainly all those riots we just mentioned were under Obama. So they, the they that, didn't want those things to become a national problem because it would hurt him. But the thing that people didn't understand is the – it didn't recognize in 2020 was the, the corporate backing of this and how much this was a cultural revolution. It wasn't just a matter of the people in the streets burning businesses down and – Killing you know, people. Providing the, the, the aesthetic of, of a threat. It was kind of like the corporations were saying, OK, we're going to implement a social revolution. Oh, and by the way, we've got a couple hundred thousand people out here in the streets beating people to death and burning businesses mm -hmm. down. So if you say anything against these policies, you know, we could turn these mobs, these hordes of barbarians loose on you. Yep. So we'll, send, it, we'll dox you. We'll send them to your home. So it might be a good idea for you to just, uh, you know, put put the black square on your profile 
support Black Lives Matter, support racial justice, admit that there's systemic racism, admit your white guilt, and just go along with the program. Because, hey, we, we don't want to have to use a stick, but we do have a stick <laughs> that we could use. We would pre- we'd prefer to use a carrot to implement the social revolution, but we do have a stick. Most if- people didn't know, <laughs> didn't recognize the social revolution for what it was for a few reasons. Number one, most Americans don't follow the news. They follow a partisan narrative. Mm-hmm. So if they didn't hear about it, if they didn't hear what was going on on talk radio or see it on Fox News, they didn't know about it. If, they do, if they're not on the right and they watch mainstream sources, they especially didn't know anything about this stuff because the mainstream sources were treating it just like normal protests. CNN, Chiron, literally, you know, fiery but mostly peaceful protests in Kenosha. The second reason is because most Americans don't have pattern recognition. They lack pattern recognition because they didn't learn history. If you know history, you recognize patterns because you understand human beings today are essentially the same as they were 100,000 years ago. And if you see a pattern, so let's say, for instance, you've got a minority group that is bringing up historic grievances. Okay, where have we seen that before in the past? Let's, let's look back at history and let's find a scenario in the past where you had a large minority group that was bringing up historic grievances. That every time there was a slight against them, they rioted, they protested. Every time a non-minority killed one of their own, they protested and rioted and they demanded change. Where have we seen this in the past? Where is the historic parallel? Where have we seen an, uh, an instance in the past where you had a political ideological movement that was radicalizing youth to use violent scare tactics against civilians to force them to accept an ideology? You know, i.e. communist China under Mao. You had the Cultural Revolution. Most Americans don't know what the Cultural Revolution in China was. They don't know anything about China. They don't know anything about history because they didn't learn history in school. And if they turn on the History Channel, all they see is shows about aliens. So you can't <laughs> or even— Or Pawn Stars. Yeah, you can't even turn on the History Channel and learn history. Okay, what about PBS? When they turn on PBS, all they see is leftist propaganda. Government-funded, yeah. Yeah, they listen to NPR. All they hear is leftist propaganda on NPR. All they hear, And if they do hear or watch a history documentary, it's anti-American. If they hear a history show, it's anti-American. So 1619 Project, all that fun stuff. They don't get any kind of pro-American perspective on history. So it's like they're, they're, all their antibodies have been destroyed. It's like they've gotten mm-hmm. history aids. They don't have any understanding of any of this stuff, so they have no pattern recognition. Another reason is for for the fact, of course, because of COVID. I remember whenever all these Black Lives Matter riots were raging, COVID was in its second wave. Mm -hmm. Nobody was paying any attention to the riots. Everyone was focused on not getting COVID. And again, they weren't acknowledging, you know, the media suspiciously, again, after, you know, Trump rallies and CPAC and other things were called super spreaders. That was the term they used, super spreader events. They were suspiciously silent on the riots and these massive gatherings of hundreds of thousands of people in the streets to burn down a police station. And they said, oh, no, no, this is fine. This isn't a super spreader. This isn't going to spread COVID. Don't worry about it. But the thing is, all of this could have been avoided. You didn't have to have riots in 2020. All of this could have been avoided if in 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, the conservative movement had been paying attention to the groundwork that was being laid for a racial cultural revolution. You had, let's just start with the 1619 Project. Mm-hmm. There was there The w- flagship of critical race theory, basically. There really was very little pushback against that. This mm-hmm. is something that conservatives should have been spreading to every single Republican voter in the country. They should have been sending out mailers explaining the 1619 Project. They should have been talking about it 24-7 on Fox News. They should have, the Trump administration should have been bringing this up every single press conference. They should have been attacking the authors of the 1619 Project. There should have been a full-throated full frontal assault on the 1619 project by the fall of 2019 but nothing happened instead they left they let a few conservative academics try to refute it they let a few mainstream liberal academics have to come out and try to refute it 
and the vast majority of people didn't know anything about it. The 1776 Project Commission that Trump ultimately created basically should have happened several years earlier. Like, it, that was a good project. It was a great team, and that had the right idea, but it was just uh, it was too much too late, basically. Right, and another thing that was too much too late was the crackdown on social media. They should have recognized mm -hmm. social media for what it was as the enabler of government overthrow. You look at the Arab Spring. That was fueled by social media. Yep. Big tech supported the democratization of the Middle East. They were convinced that these young people were going to overthrow these tyrannical regimes and set up secular, atheistic, Western-style democracy. So they fueled that on social media. Well, if the social, if the big tech oligarchs are against your administration, you have to realize that if given the opportunity, they will fuel a violent revolution to overthrow your administration. And if not violent, they will at least fuel a peaceful revolution to overthrow your administration. And we had – it wasn't just the Arab Spring. We had all the color revolutions to look at and That's see right. examples when social media and these nonprofits, these philanthropies funded by people like George Soros – funded the overthrow of democratically elected governments. You had all of this, all of these patterns, and the Trump administration did absolutely nothing. The conservative media in America did absolutely nothing. And intellectuals, conservative intellectuals did not, absolutely nothing. They did you stop. had a lot of people on the right who just deferred to, oh, free speech, man, you know, First Amendment. They're private companies. They can do what they want. Another thing that fueled Black Lives Matter in 2020 was the rise of black revanchism or black nationalism. You had movies like Black Panther that fueled mm -hmm. a massive wave of black pride, of black separatism, of black identitarianism. And of course, this was being this was just running rampant on social media. You had the sudden surge out of nowhere of the whole Juneteenth phenomenon mixed with this kind of the, the myth of Black Wall Street. So if you're a conservative in 2019, you have to look at all these trends, all these patterns and say, okay, I see a massive racial violent revolution taking place as early as next year. But none of that happened. Like you didn't have the people who were talking about this. They were marginalized. They were called neo-Nazis. They were called white supremacists. Yeah, exactly. if they brought up race. They, yeah, I mean, you did have a few people, but nobody with a serious megaphone that was recognizing these patterns and saying, look, this is where society is going. We can mm -hmm. stop this now. We can cut this off. We can nip this in the bud. The whole reason this all came to be such a big focus, and we will, again, bring this back to the topic of the Virginia elections and elections in 2021 that were greatly influenced by this. The reason it finally came to a head is because of COVID. People said this was the silver lining of COVID when schools were canceled and it went to in-person remote virtual learning and kids are on their Zoom, on their computers at home learning their lessons and the parents are able to be there in the background watching over their shoulder or maybe the dad will be just be reading the newspaper in the living room nearby and he'll suddenly hear his kids teacher say and now and this is why you white people all have privilege and he'll mm -hmm. like what? what what was that and parents all over the country finally heard it and saw it firsthand and then it finally became a mainstream topic. Yeah, that's when the chickens finally came home to roost. But unfortunately, it you know, it shouldn't get there. We it should, shouldn't have got to this if point. If we yeah. had a functioning, healthy right in America, if we had a right wing, a functioning conservatism in America, it wouldn't. You wouldn't have to wait till the parents, the apolitical, exactly. normie parents, find out about this stuff. They it should have been the right should have been more focused on culture and less focused on tax policy. Basically, less focused on tax policy. Let's focus on the on the horse races, like the political horse races. Mm -hmm. Of course, the political horse races are what get viewers. There we get readers. And so that, that's the reason why they focus on that stuff, because it's about the money and not about the country. But, yeah, it's, it's kind of a sad narrative when it has to get down to the normie, apolitical parent. Even a lot of Democrat parents yes. are looking at this stuff and they're like, uh-uh, like, this, ain't, this ain't what we believe in. I've been supporting – I've been a good supporter of social justice. Why are my kids still being told that they're racist? Mm -hmm. So, But, yeah, so 2021, that is a silver lining in 2021 is mm -hmm. it was better late than never, but – the reaction – you're finally starting to see a grassroots reaction to 
Black Lives Matter in the form of critical race theory that you should have seen in June of 2020. Because I remember when the on the riots broke out, like after uh, the Trayvon Martin case, after uh, what was that Ferguson, Michael uh, Brown, Michael Brown, went after the, after those riots broke out, there was a visceral reaction, and there was a reactionary movement, a reactionary knee jerk reaction in this country among normal people against this kind of violence, against this kind of black nationalism, against this kind of radicalism. You didn't see that in 2020 for the reasons I mentioned above. You know, well, Americans have become more jaded, more they don't they lack pattern recognition. A lot of the people, you know, a lot of those the, the older people who uh, who recognize us who were around in the 60s and they remember this stuff. A lot of them aren't with us anymore. They've already died off since since Ferguson and today. Well, and that's especially why when you look at uh, Missouri in particular, the Ferguson riots happened in um, 2014, I believe. And you look at how in 2012, Mitt Romney won the state of Missouri over Obama by only about nine points. And then you contrast that with Missouri in 2016. So, of course, after the Ferguson riots, Trump won Missouri by 19 points. Mm-hmm. So and that is a direct result. Missouri is a state that people forget almost went for Obama in 2008. McCain barely won that state. It was a purple state. They had a Democratic senator there elected in 2012, Claire McCaskill. And it went from being a purple state to being deep, deep red that is now not even contention anymore because of Ferguson. Yeah, so that I mean that is one silver lining of 2021 is uh, you got the people are finally focused on school boards. Like Tennessee recently made it mandatory to make school board races partisan, whereas beforehand they were nonpartisan and everybody would be a Democrat. They would just run as nonpartisan and they would talk, talk about education and conservative parents would be like, okay, yeah, you, this sounds like a nice person. I'll elect them, and they're a radical leftists. Well, now yep. they have to identify themselves as Republican or Democrat. So that's a positive. And then Texas is, I think, is trying to do this. Uh, what is not Missouri is want to do this. A few other states are doing this. So th- Florida that- is also like several states are outright banning critical race theory, for example, or like issuing directives to ban it in the schools. So that obviously is that is something we should be doing. Yeah. So the focus on education, the focus on school boards is uh, definitely the most white pilling development of 2021 because it does show in 2022 it's it's not just going to all be about taxes because what would happen in the past is they would you would have Republican candidates that would run on taxes. But yep. they would give subtle hints. Welfare that reform. Welfare yeah, reform. They would exactly. give subtle hints that they're with right-wingers, that they're with conservatives on the cultural issues, but they wouldn't talk about the cultural issues. They would just give subtle hints. They'd run on the think tank stuff instead of the, the actual issues people care about. Fox News would put out right-wing uh, dog whistles. <laughs> dog and whistles. to make it sound like – to make their viewers feel like this candidate is going to stand up for my cultural values but when really all the candidate was standing up for was low taxes. And they yep. would – they. The, it's it's amazing how Fox News successfully turned fiscal policies into cultural policies. They managed to create the same reaction among people toward higher taxes, higher regulation, among people who have never owned a business in their life, among people who don't even pay taxes. They've managed to create this, this negative reaction to higher taxes on corporations, higher regulations on corporations that will never affect their lives, and they managed to take that – they've managed to infuse – the cultural anger into taxes, into regulations. So, and it's amazing. It's an amazing feat that they managed to take anger that was at among the working class white people in America and turned it into a basically turned all these people into defenders of mega corporations. Turned like all these the people, Tea Party basically kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. They took the which what was natural reaction to you know cultural norms, changing cultural norms, and just turned it into fiscal conservatism. Exactly, and that that again is why the Trump movement in some ways did succeed where the Tea Party failed, largely because again, as we have talked about before, Trump was able to be a single 
definitive leader, a single name and a single face leading the movement, which makes it a lot harder to hijack than a faceless, nameless, leaderless movement like the Tea Party was, which basically was this big wave. It was one of the biggest wave, midterm waves in American history, and it got turned into a Paul Ryan, Marco Rubio movement. Yeah, it just got, it just got co-opted. But I mean, when you have when you have Sarah Palin leading a Tea Party, at that point, it's like, wait a minute, weren't you the VP <laughs> candidate from before the Tea Party was even started? Like, what are you doing? What are you doing exactly. here? Exactly. Oh my goodness. But yeah, so speaking of the political movements going into 2021, again, it's an off year, so there were only a handful of elections, but we talked about it already. Virginia was one. New Jersey had theirs. There were a handful of other elections. We did a recap episode on this, but we will again briefly summarize it. Virginia, a state that went for Joe Biden by about 10 points in the 2020 election, ended up being swept in a complete red wave in 2021, just one year later. We had, as we mentioned, the former governor, Terry McAuliffe, who was former chair of the Democratic National Committee. He was Bill Clinton's right-hand man. He was one of their top fundraisers. He was beaten by Republican businessman Glenn Youngkin, who had never run for office before. Sounds familiar. And Youngkin, again, as we talked about, Youngkin, Youngkin wasn't initially like Trump. We did, uh, we did, of course, an against Youngkin episode as kind of a tribute to the National Review's against Trump episode. And we talked about how, among other things, he virtue signaled in favor of Black Lives Matter. He came out against uh, pro-life laws like the Texas law. He very thoroughly pissed off a lot of conservative activists and voters in the state. And at that point, we both thought, oh, okay, there's no way he can win this. He's already, he's he's stepping on his own feet several times. He's not going to win this. McAuliffe, name recognition, fundraising, Democrats day, he's going to win. And Youngkin ended up winning after all by two points. And he led, he arguably, you could, you could argue his candidacy did leave, lead the red wave. We also saw the lieutenant governor flip to blue to red and attorney general flip from, from blue to red, as well as the House of Delegates flip from a five-seat Democrat majority to a two-seat Republican majority. And this, of course, sent shockwaves throughout the country politically. It was widely seen as a massive upset. McAuliffe led in most of the polls. And why did this happen, of course? This happened because Youngkin, in the last few weeks of the campaign, ultimately did shift in favor of a more cultural message. He started talking more about vaccine mandates and mask mandates and lockdowns and stuff, and he seized on critical race theory because Virginia, northeastern Virginia, the suburbs across the river from D.C., Loudoun, Arlington, Fairfax, Alexandria, became ground zero for the, as we talked about, the aforementioned school board battle. You saw hundreds of parents show up to these pro these school board meetings in Loudoun and Arlington and others and protesting against critical race theory, against transgender bathroom policies that read to a boy, a, a a male student who identified as female raping two different girls in two different schools, and it was covered up because it was right around the time of Pride Month, June. And they protested against this. We saw parents get beaten and arrested by cops just for protesting, and Youngkin came out in support of these parents and said, I'm going to ban critical race theory. I'm with you, the parents. And that brought him over the edge. Uh, it got the Karens, as we talked about jokingly in the episode, it was called Revenge of the Karens. It got the Karens on his side, and it got rural, white, non-college-educated voters and especially white women as well, to vote for him in record numbers. The more white, rural, and non-college voters voted for Glenn Youngkin in 2021 than they did for Donald Trump in 2020. And that is not because of Youngkin. Youngkin. This victory can be attributed to a lot of things. I don't think Youngkin himself is one of them. He was more just the vessel for it. It was. It can be attributed to the broader culture war that President Trump started. I wrote an article on this for American Greatness. And this shows the power of the coalition you can build when you run against critical race theory, you run against this transgenderism nonsense, you focus on the cultural issues. This can work, it has worked, and it will work again. And we saw a few other elections, of course, in 2021 that were equally astounding. In Seattle, again, in Seattle, the city of Chaz, a Republican won the election for state city 
for, for the city attorney in the city of Seattle, a Republican in Seattle, largely running on cracking down on crime. Because again, just a year ago, we saw the biggest act of lawlessness in the entire city. In all of the riots across the country was Chaz, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, where multiple people, multiple people just kept getting shot for sport until they eventually shut it down because the anarcho-communists wanted to give it a try. And we also saw, of course, in New Jersey, the biggest meme election result you have ever seen. The state Senate president of New Jersey, Steve Sweeney, widely cited as the most powerful lawmaker in New Jersey, was defeated by Ed Durr, a trucker, the Republican nominee, who spent $153 on his campaign. He filmed one campaign video on his cell phone. He had a Facebook page instead of a website, and he beat this guy. That was the power of the red wave that we saw, largely driven by culture, by opposition to CRT, opposition to transgenderism, and opposition to the lockdowns. So Republican, the Republican Party would be fools to not seize upon this strategy for next year's midterms. So when you're looking back at the at the accomplishments and failures of a previous year from for your um, you know for the country as a whole, you would think you would look at things like stuff like you know how is the economic health of the country, how is uh, even if you let's say you're on the left, you would look at wealth inequality and all this stuff. Stuff. Well, Politico magazine did a ran an article called "How Will History Books Remember 2021?" and they and they interviewed multiple historians. Like these are a lot of them Ivy League historians. One of them teaches at Columbia. And they, uh, it's, it's funny how they shaped the narrative. So they decided to judge, to gauge 2021 on three criteria. Number one was COVID. Number two was the health of democracy. And number three was uh, systemic racism. So they're going to try to gauge how 2021 turned out. And they're going to start off with, okay, well, how did America handle systemic racism? Well, when half the country, well, more than half the country doesn't believe the country is systemically racist, how are you supposed to answer that question? Uh, they want to look at, okay, how did America, America handle COVID? Well, I mean, obviously they're interviewing a bunch of historians. How do you think they're going to answer that? And then the second one, uh, third one, how did they, how was the health of democracy? Well, how do you think these historians, who are most of whom are red diaper babies, define democracy? So, of course, all of these historians are looking back on 2021 and really complaining about the fact that not everyone got vaccinated. That's the reason why COVID hasn't gone away. They're looking at uh, the so-called racial justice progress. They're looking at states that are implementing voter ID requirements and seeing that as a way to disenfranchise minority voters. And then, of course, they're looking at the so-called health of democracy, and they bring up the January 6th riot like 15 times in this article. By Every single historian has to mention that as we're seeing the fall of democracy, the erosion of democracy. But I bring that up to point out this. like whenever you, This is why whenever they ask historians to rate presidents, all the liberal presidents end up ranking at the top. And this is the yeah, system. FDR, LBJ, exactly. This is this is the system that that American conservatives are having to operate in. You got all of the historians, all of the major historians te- that teach at all the major universities, all agree on one thing: that the country and the world should move toward an anti-nationalist, more globalistic worldview and agenda. No more borders. No more national identity anywhere. Basically. Yeah, l- let's all work together to solve global problems rather than focusing on our people and our nation because they reject they they completely reject the whole notion that we have a people they reject the whole notion that we have a nation like our people they would see that as as racist our nation that's uh no that's that's fascistic you sound like a fascist when you talk like that so this is the perspective that the experts hold and this is why the debate whenever you have a presidential debate all of the questions are already asked in such a way to where if you're a conservative, you simply cannot answer without looking like an idiot. And this is by design. So whenever they're asking historians, how would you rate 2021? How will the history books rate 2021? What's interesting is on climate change, 
Oh boy. They're told, they're wondering, they're asking these historians, so how would you rate, how do you think they're going to look at 2021 100 years from now? And one of them is saying, well, they're probably going to look at 2021 as the year that we failed to act on climate change. I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute. Now, if climate change is really a, a civilization ending disaster, then uh, nobody's going to be around in 100 years to talk to about this anyway. No one's going to be around to rate 2021 yeah. as the worst year ever. But yes, yeah, so, I mean, this is, the, this is the problem with conservatism is they spend way too much time focused on politics and they spend way too little time focused on the institutions. Because you can't – this is the thing that they argue in the media, that conservatives, they want to overthrow America's institutions. They don't believe in America's institutions. Well, if your institutions hate you and hate your beliefs and believe that everything you believe is wrong, why would you support those institutions? Mm -hmm. Then, yeah, all of your energy should be in trying to overthrow those institutions and take them over with your experts. Because there's hundreds of historians out there that would make much better historians at these Ivy League schools – you know, they have the work ethic, they have the intellect, they have the education, but they simply don't hold the right ideology. So, of course, exactly. they were passed over, and that's mm-hmm. why America's elite historians at elite universities all think and believe the same thing, because we've essentially taken the Soviet model and implemented it in America's academia and America's universities. And we're seeing this, of course, I think I have talked about this on the podcast before, or I think I did write an article on American greatness for this, but. The, the way the historians have treated Trump, it's such a joke. Again, go to the Wikipedia page if you really want to see an example of what this kind of pseudo-historical, pseudo-scholarly nonsense looks like. Trump's Wikipedia page already makes a note at the very end of the, the lead, the first few article paragraphs at the top of the article. At the very end, it says, scholars and historians rank Trump as one of the worst presidents in American history. <laughs> like, already, like, right after he left. And I said, again, in February of 2018, just a year, a little over one year after Trump was inaugurated, he still had three-fourths of his presidency to go, the American Political Science Association conducted its own survey of you know, polit- political scientists who, quote, specialize, end quote, in the American presidency. This survey, after just one year, declared Trump to be the worst president in American history, 44 out of 44. He had been in office for one year. Uh, a year later, in February of 2019, halfway through his term, Siena College would release their own survey, ranking him 42 out of 44 of the worst presidents in American history. He has not finished his term yet. Like, come on. He, they did this unironically, deadpan seriously, with his presidencies still in progress. They This is like if you watch the first 30 minutes of The Godfather and then shut it off and declare, that's the worst movie I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> like, although I'm sure the first 30 minutes of The Godfather would be better than most of what comes out of Hollywood today, but I digress. But it's it, it shows they are serious about this. They know people will take them seriously because they have the, the scholar name attached to them. They have a PhD. They have their diplomas on the wall. They have the, the fancy caps or whatever. They, they know... They will be taken seriously because, as you said, a lot of Americans still do not yet see that our institutions are fundamentally flawed and broken and just completely unrecognizable from what they were decades ago. They are determined to rewrite history and use their positions of power and influence to do so. And it's not going to stop. They, they're rewriting the history of the Trump administration. They are rewriting history of what happened on January 6th. They're rewriting the history of what happened in the 2020 election. They are determined to completely gaslight you and to tell you none of this really happened. The same with the race riots. They're convinced to say, they're determined to say, oh, no, no, no. these were peaceful protests. There, there were no riots there. There was no violence. There, there were maybe a few broken windows here and there. They are rewriting history as you know it. So that when those who are alive to see it today, you and me and those who witnessed it and actually saw the truth, are long gone, the only people who are left to tell the story of if there is any story to be told will be those 
who listen to the false history and don't know any better. Speaking of institutions, there's one more thing I wanted to summarize that I think Jacob and I are in agreement on with regards to an area where we are making steady progress. Again, you could argue it's maybe too much too late, but it's still looking really good, and that is big tech. A year ago, this is, this is how this episode's gonna be dated, a year ago, President Trump was still on social media. He was on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. He was on, that was his platform. Twitter was his signature megaphone in both campaigns and during his presidency. Of course, in the aftermath of the peaceful protests on January 6th, they simultaneously banned him from all platforms. They deleted his legendary Twitter account, which was among, I think, like the top five most followed Twitter accounts on the website. He had 90 million followers. They banned him from YouTube. They banned him from Instagram, banned him from Facebook. The pages on those three websites, the pages are still there. He just can't post there anymore. The Twitter account, of course, and all the legendary tweets about thin people drinking Diet Coke or, or, or Diet Pepsi are all gone. So where are we now? We were very much in a wilderness in the aftermath of those bannings of President Trump. And because, of course, they were banning Trump supporters in the years before that they banned. Of course, they went from banning Alex Jones in less than a year to banning President Trump. And now people are still being banned on a regular basis when their accounts aren't being used to survey them. Sometimes, you know, they the big tech companies are working with the government to hand over social media information to protesters who were there in D.C. on January 6th. And now here we are at the end of 2021. Some progress has been made. Now, of course, we are on pretty much all the major alternatives. We are on Gab. We're on BitChute. We are on Mines. But there has been a steady rise in finally a solid conservative ecosystem, an alternative ecosystem to big tech. And we are seeing this primarily through the works, and I will give credit where credit is due, Dan Bongino, the Fox News personality and now radio host who has replaced uh, the slot held by the late Rush Limbaugh. We paid tribute to him earlier this year as well, following his death in February. He is investing a lot of his money in these big alternatives. And he started, of course, with Parler, which was kind of one of the first big attempts at a Twitter alternative. And, of course, we all know how that went down, that in the immediate aftermath of January 6th, Parler was accused of being part of the attempts to incite insurrection. And, unfortunately, they had made a fatal mistake at Parler by hosting their website on Amazon servers. So Amazon pulled the plug. And the website was shut down for, I think, like weeks after that, maybe even a month or so before they finally found, I think, Russian servers or some other foreign servers to get their website back up and running. Uh, but by that point, Parler, the damage had been done and people don't really use Parler anymore. Bongino appears to have learned from the mistakes of Parler, and he has invested heavily in the video sharing website, the YouTube alternative, Rumble, where we can also be found. And they have done a lot of good work. They have their own servers. And they have drawn a lot of popular conservative personalities to their website, including, this is something most people don't know, President Trump himself. It is the one alternative platform Donald Trump is on right now. He has his own verified account, Donald J. Trump, where he mostly streams his rallies and posts his official statements for holidays, like Veterans Day and stuff like that. He is on Rumble. People forget about that. But uh, Bongino's there. Dinesh D'Souza, I think, is like the biggest channel. He and, and Bongino are the top two big channels there. And it is among the most trafficked websites in the world. It has done very well for itself. And it very recently, Rumble had two big business deals. They merged, of course, they bought, they acquired Locals, a website created by Dave Rubin in, I believe, 2019. That's kind of, to my knowledge, it's kind of a mix of Facebook and Substack. So for like sharing content and there are different tiers of subscribers, you can follow people for free and you can also have paid subscriptions for exclusive content. Rumble acquired that, and the two websites are now kind of linked. If you go to, like, the Rumble interface, there's, like, a link there to link, you know, Rumble videos and Rumble broadcasts with locals, kind of similar to what Instagram and Facebook do, because, again, those uh, Facebook owns Instagram, or I guess, I'm sorry, Meta now is the new company that owns those webs, those social media sites. 
And also, Rumble announced that it will be going public. It will be listed on the NASDAQ sometime next year. And that, of course, is a huge move. And it saw a ton of investments come flowing in, as did, of course, President Trump's uh, the TMTG, the Trump Media Technology Group that President Trump announced will ultimately be the the foundation for his website, Truth Social, which I'm assuming is going to be kind of like a Twitter alternative that will be launching sometime next year. So and they have already announced ahead of time that Truth Social will be partnering with Rumble. They will be using Rumble's uh cloud computing service and a lot of the other infrastructure laid out by Rumble to build the groundwork for this massive website. So these websites all working together and bringing in conservative personalities, there is a collaborative effort here like what you would see on the left. We all know the social the big tech companies collaborate and collude with each other. That's what led to the banning of President Trump. And again, simultaneous Alex Jones, people forget when he was banned, he was banned simultaneously on all the platforms within the span of 24 hours. They collude all the time. So now we have the conservative alternatives that are working together and it is looking promising. So again, this should have been done. I think we are in agreement, Jacob, that this should have been done a few years earlier, kind of like the response to CRT. But I, I will say, again, I'm a, I'm an optimist. Better late than never. It might be too late, but it's definitely, it's definitely much. It is much that is being done and it is a positive development. So we have that to look forward to as well. Unfortunately, though, that is all the time we have left for this episode and, as it were, for this year of The Right Take. Thank you guys so much for staying with us for these 47 episodes, and here's to however many more episodes we have in the future and however many more years we have with this podcast. We hope to continue delivering the best content, the best interviews with special guests, the best deep dive analyses, you will find investigative reports like we did on the 2020 election. We will be doing more of those in the future. We'll be having more guests in the future. And we are excited to see where this podcast is going to go and the growth we are going to have in 2022 and up to 2024 and beyond. So as always, guys, if you want to follow all of our latest content, you can find it all at our website, righttakepodcast.com. You can find the full list of social media websites, the alternatives, and the podcast platforms where we are available at righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And as always, if you are feeling so generous, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next year, guys. <laughs>